Well, thank you, choir. Thank you very much. It's good to say those words again. The choir is back in business. All right, if in the last week you have read through the book of Daniel, I'm taking the tally mark, so you have to raise your hand nice and high so I can see it. Anybody out there? One, two, three, four, five, six. Did I miss anybody up here? Six more. 58. 75 is right almost there. We're getting there. So keep it up. If you haven't read so far, we're waiting for you. All right? We need that. All right. Somebody might have given one word for each chapter as a title to sum up that chapter. One word for each chapter of the book of Daniel. Anybody do that this week? All right, Anthony, we'll start with you. Chapter 1, preparation. 2, testing. 3, uncompromising. 4, sovereignty. 5, lackeys. 6, faithfulness. 7, kingdom. 8, gambit. 9, intercession. 10, overwhelm. 11, ministry. End game. End game. All right. Good, good. Karen. And chapter 1, Very good. It's challenging when you're doing one letter in that. And nobody's tried even the K's or the J's or anything like that yet. So, good. Anybody else? Anybody up there? Not yet? Okay. Very good. We're up to 11 now on that one. Memory verses. Five memory verses from the whole book of Daniel. Pick any five you want. Anybody do that for us this week? All right, we got two hands right there. Three hands. Oh, here they come. This is great. In my vision at night, I wrote 
All right, good job. I wish our folks on the uh, Zoom could hear all that. I realize it's not always that easy to do, but that's well done. And remind our Zoom folks this. I know you're looking right at me. You can memorize these too. Write them on a piece of paper and send them to me, and we will count that. All right, that would be great too. All right, anybody else? No? All right. Well, we're getting there. So far I have 17 has participated in verses, 11 with chapter titles, and 58 have taken... Now, I'm not adding those up to get 75. No. I'd like 75 in all the categories if you want to know the truth. So let's see what we could do about that. I just encourage you, get into the book this week. Uh, if you haven't read it, read it. You'll find it. It's a blessing. So... Heavenly Father, help us today as we study your word. Uh, again, another passage that will come right back at us, we know, and uh, challenge us in our own character and in our trust of you. And I pray, Lord, that you will have our hearts soft and receptive, that we would be resolved to follow your way, to do what you would have us to do, and above all, to praise and honor your name. We live in days where uncompromising people are needed, and I pray you do our, the work in our lives to make us like that, too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're still in Daniel 2, and I do think next week we might start the prophecy. We haven't been there yet. We've been covering all the details leading up to it. And uh, in Daniel chapter number 2, work your way over to verse 29 and 30. That's what we're going to focus on specifically today, 29 and 30. We're dealing with the theme of uncompromising, a resolution to follow and obey God, regardless of the consequence of living in a pagan world. Three words, trust God regardless. Trust God regardless. There is a significant issue in the whole category of trust. Something that will stop faith in its tracks. It starts with a P. Second letter is R. Third is I. Pride. Pride. That big old word. It always seems to stick its head up at the wrong time. Here we have it today. We're going to talk about pride. James 4, 6 says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Why did it need repeated? Do you know that that is not the first time it showed up in Scripture? Actually, they were quoting an Old Testament verse. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But I'll tell you what it means when it says God has opposed it to the proud. When pride gets within his vicinity, he puts on his battle gear to stand against it. He prepares for war every time he sees pride. That's what the word opposed means. Opposed means to range and battle against something. To stand and set oneself against something. It's a warfare term. But here's what is really, really, really stunning in those phrases. God is opposed to the proud. Those are present tense verbs. That means that's always the case. He is always constantly, continually opposed to the proud. He doesn't stop one minute and say, well, oh, that's okay. Well, I'll let it go this time. He puts on his weapons of war when pride gets in his vicinity. You got a picture in your mind now? It's pretty incredible. God is opposed to the proud. Opposed to the proud. That came from Psalm 3. All right, I mean Proverbs, sorry if you wrote that down. Just hopefully you only had a P. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 34. It actually reads funny because in the Hebrew it says, he scoffs at the scoffers. He scoffs at the scoffers. Now, Proverbs 21, 24 kind of identifies what this looks like because it says in Proverbs 20. 124, that proud, haughty, scoffer are his name, he who acts with insolent pride. Those are the terms that God gives to those who live by pride. Now, I like the fact that Habakkuk defines it in a better way, not, I wouldn't say better, but in a more in-depth way. He actually puts an x-ray machine on it. He pulls out an MRI. He brings out the CAT scan and the PET scan. He puts it all on there. He says, you want to know what this looks like? This is what Habakkuk says in 2.4. But as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. When God examines, it's not an external thing. He goes down to the depth of your very being, your soul, and he says, it's not right. When there's pride in the picture, that's what God sees. Do you know it's something he not only sees and he sets up to war against, but he hates it. That's a strong term, by the way. There's some things in Scripture that God says he hates. And there is one section in particular where God goes through great detail to say what he hates. In Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19, he gives a list of seven things God hates. And here's the list. <laughs> Matter of fact, these things he says, this is verse 16, there are... There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven that are a, an abomination to him. 
You want to guess what's first on the list? Pride. It's about pride. It's the word haughty. It says here, watch the, watch the attention to body parts. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness that utters lies. And one who spreads strife among the brothers. Now, when you boil all of these down, you see that the high emphasis is on pride. Pride is a part of all this. It's related to the whole. It's usually shown by the mouth. But pride is a problem of the soul. Why did I start with such a study? Because I just felt like, boy, I want to beat you up before we even start the sermon today. No. It has a lot to do with what we're going to look at here. In the uncompromising character that we're studying, we're hoping to become like the one who has a resolution to follow God and obey God, regardless of the consequence of living in a pagan world, to trust God regardless. Guess what stands in the way every single time? It's that pride. Because pride goes against faith. And God is against pride. I want you to picture something for a minute. We've been talking about this, uh, this palace room here Daniel's just been brought into. Over here is Nebuchadnezzar. And is he a guy of pride? We're going to talk a lot about him. There he is, and all his pride on his throne. He can tell people to, to be exterminated, and somebody goes out and does it. Very prideful man. Over here is Daniel, a 16-year-old maybe, a captive, standing right here. You're not going to see pride in this guy as he talks to this great king. But the one you don't see in the room, but is definitely in the room, is God himself. And he has taken his battle position in this scene. Watch how it transpires here. So, why is pride an issue? I said, Nebuchadnezzar, it's easy for him to, to be identified as a prideful man. We can prove that all the way through scripture. But what might be a danger for Daniel at this very moment. Here's what it could be. Pride often uses the tool of the tongue to get out of trouble. If they're in trouble, I mean how we employ our mouths and our eyes and our heart and our hands and our feet, anything and whatever it takes to free ourselves from trouble. Do you wonder if he was tempted standing in the midst of this courtroom? He could have been exterminated on the spot. And how do you answer a king like that? He doesn't have a lot going for him, but here's Daniel, possibly 16 years old, a captive, away from his home, away from his parents, as best we could tell, uh, certainly away from his country. He's a young man in a three-year training program to become a Babylonian. 
He's eating vegetables and drinking water with his three friends, while all the others among them are enjoying the finest diet of Babylonian cuisine. Here is Daniel. He has just been sentenced to death. Along with all these other wise men, spiritual frauds, by the way. What a group to go down with. But there's Daniel with no ability among all these wise men to answer this king's request. He's been sentenced to death. Here is Daniel. The executioner has found him. The executioner explains that he must kill him and holds off while Daniel collects his three friends and they go to pray. So here is Daniel, told by God the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and the interpretation that goes with it. Now he's in a courtroom, standing before the most powerful king with an answer. And let's be careful because this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. Daniel, if you answer this, you can be a very wealthy man. How quickly can pride start working into this story? You can be a very wealthy man. So we pick up our story. Let's go to verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for this mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise man, conjurer, magician, nor diviner are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. But for the purpose of making known the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Stop right there. We're going to go into the prophecy real soon. Last week we talked about the character of our God. Daniel is very careful to weave that into all of his dialogue. And he did it, as we saw, the character of God and the fact that he exists, he reveals... He answers. Those things were early said in these words, especially around verse number 28 and 29. Here's the reality. The more you learn about God, the more you learn to trust him. When you know him little, you trust him little. I want to focus just a little bit today on the character of Daniel. But I want to relate to you something as we begin this. The character of Daniel is such that it will point you back to God every time. That's what I noticed about him. In our desire to know things, surely you want to know what somebody sees in you, right? If, they, if you could actually ask them, what do you see in me? What do you, what, what do you think of, of what you see in me? 
who do you see in me? That'd be a pretty heavy question if you're allowed an honest answer in the, of course you may not say, don't tell me anything you really want to say, just tell me what I want to hear, right? Uh, but asking a question like that would be kind of tough anyway. If you ask John the Baptist that question, he had a quick answer. His answer was, I must decrease and he must increase. The greatest impression we ought to make before man is that we have a great God. I hope when people see us and think about us, they think first of our God and how great he is. That it's not our character, but it's his character that they see first. Wouldn't that be a wonderful response? Look back at the throne room with me for a few minutes. We have a very prideful king sitting here. Power, wealth, education, intelligence, beauty, family, those are those things that produce pride. Who knows how many of those components he had, but he sure had his share of pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. If he was standing up here before you right now, he would say that too. He was a king of the most powerful kingdom on the earth at that time. He had conquered the greatest armies. He had subjugated nations to his authority. He could threaten and make his threats come about. It appears that from his seat there was no one who could oppose him. He obviously didn't know who, was else, who else was in the throne room, did he? He thought he was by himself. Chapter one, or lesson number one, lesson number one on pride is not going to be in chapter four. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to a beast for some time until he recognizes God. That's not lesson number one. Lesson one is not in chapter number three when he encounters a fourth man walking in the fire. Lesson one doesn't come even in the, that encounter with the fire. It comes from the words of a teenager who stands in his presence and is not afraid to speak clearly about the fact that God exists and that God reveals and God answers. Nebuchadnezzar thought up to this moment that it was the duty of man to interpret dreams. That's why he gave it to his wise men to do. That's why he told them to do that. But I'm watching something as I'm going through these passages, and I'm enjoying this, but Nebuchadnezzar will show a great deal of pride. And we've already seen that God is opposed to the pride. Yet, folks, God is so patient in these pictures. Think about it. He is so merciful to Nebuchadnezzar, who he could have squashed like a bug at any moment whatsoever. But he grants him the interpretation of the dream. He grants him a revelation of himself at a, furnace, a fiery furnace. He reveals himself when Nebuchadnezzar is in its prideful boast. He gives him a chance to know him. Gives him a chance to trust him. 
Nebuchadnezzar, when we are done with his story, he is a different man than what we read in chapter number 1. But this is what Daniel said. As for you, verse 29, O king, while on your bed you thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. That sure sounds like a reason to get prideful. But as for me, Daniel says, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me any more than any other living man. <laughs> his his uh, first statement in this regard, I am not wiser than anyone else on this planet. I am not the wisest guy in the bunch. I am not him. This dream was revealed to me, but it's not for me. He didn't reveal it to me to better my position in your eyes. He did not give this to me so I could be promoted above, above the other wise men. It was not given to me to help my status. It wasn't given to me to help my wealth. It wasn't given to me to be popular. This mystery has not been revealed to me only for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king. I'm just the tool that God used. The wisdom is his. The future is his. The kingdoms that come and they go are his. He changes the times. He changes the seasons. He establishes the kings. He takes down kings. He gives wisdom. He gives knowledge. He reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows what is in darkness. Daniel did not take credit for what God did through him. He did not. That's why I started the way I did today. That's why I referenced it. The character of Daniel is such that it points you back to God. Those are his words. It's God. Not me. It's God. He's just like that John the Baptist. I'm, I, I just want to decrease here because he needs to increase. He needs to increase. What an impression. Like I said, wouldn't it be nice if that was the impression we set before people today that they look at us and say, what a great God you have. There's lessons we can learn along the way, and we're trying to do that. Even before we dig into the dream itself, just look at the words that keep popping up. Scripture keeps repeating over and over. I am opposed to the proud. I am opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. Some of you carry a Rari study Bible with you, the footnote down at the bottom, or the little caption. He talks about humility. It says, Christianity made humility a major virtue. It is an attitude of mind that realizes that one is without any reason for distinction in God's sight. You want to know what kind of person God uses? It tells us in his word. He makes it abundantly clear. Too often we think like the world thinks. 
we think that God prefers the wisest, that God prefers the fastest, that God prefers the smartest and the most impressive and the most educated and the most wealthy. And we, so we try to achieve something in that category to somehow impress this world and maybe impress God too. The Corinthians were like that. The Corinthians struggled with pride. You read their book, the First Corinthians letter. It's not an easy read to tell the truth. Oh, we have some happy chapters in there. We like the love chapter, don't we? We like chapter 15. It talks about uh, the future resurrection we have, the raptures in there and all the rest. We get excited about those. But the bulk of the book is just it's putting them in their place. Because they're a prideful, prideful group of people. They chose the best in every single department to be their leaders, regardless of their spiritual temperature. Matter of fact, most of them had very low temperature, spiritually speaking. They called them heroes. God wanted humble people. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and I'm going to read this. It's in chapter 1, starts in verse 17, and I'm just going to read it to you somewhat slowly, a little emphatically, as if you're hearing it for the first time. This is what Paul said. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks, they search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, that's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many among you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty among you, not many noble among you, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the base things. That's the lowest rung, folks, of the world and the despised things, those who are rejected by the world. God has chosen them. The things that are not, the nobodies. God has Chosen that he might nullify the things that are, 
so that no man may boast before God. For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Picture Daniel. It's not me. It's him. It's him. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not looking at me. You're looking at the character of my God. These things are from him. Because he can take this weak, young man. He could take me as I am, as a captive. He could take me and let me stand before a king like this. And he can use me to show his character. His character. You know, suddenly that employs all of us now, doesn't it? Far too often we think it has to be somebody special and educated and all these things for God to reach down and choose him. But he just says, here, take any one of us. He goes down to the, even the lowest level. The nobodies, the rejected of the world, the lowest rung of the ladder. He picks these things on purpose so that when it's all said and done, it's not us that they see, but it's our God. That's what he does. That's what he does. See, Daniel could preach this message, can't he? Emphasizing the truth that as we go through our focus, it comes down to this. Trust God regardless. He didn't have to work on something to get to the place where he could stand before that king. Daniel was not alone. He was not alone. He knew that the Lord was with him. And we folks need to remember, you're not alone in this world either. This world is challenging, and you know, it's going to get more so. To stand firm in your faith, you're going to become very unique in our world. I'm not being prophetic. I just know what Scripture says. Things do not get better. They grow from bad to worse. And if you think it's hard now, being a Christian in this world is going to get tough. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that should push you closer to your God. <laughs> That's what it's about. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. It's about him. Yes, in the classroom, it's about him. At work, it's about him. In the family, it's about him. We're his tools. Oh, I know he treats us very preciously, doesn't he? He does. He calls us his children. He loves us so dearly. I love those words. I know. But we need uncompromising men and women and children who stand fast in their faith, unwilling to waver, even though this pompous world is going to stand up in front of us to intimidate us and shout at us and mock us and call us all kinds of names they want. They convince us that our hope and our success is in their way and not in God's. They're going to push us that way every single time. Can we let the world see that we just trust him? That we just trust him, we live for him, 
Can they see in us the attitude, I must decrease and he must increase? How about trying to make it a practice that the first thing out of our mouth is recognition that God is? Maybe that would change our whole vocabulary, wouldn't it? First thing that we say is that we trust him regardless. I want to read to you just an excerpt here from a book that Andrew Murray wrote. It's a little book. It's called Absolute Surrender. Absolute Surrender. And I'm just going to read a small portion from chapter number one. And I couldn't help as I was reading this to think of Daniel, to think of him standing in the presence of that great king, that prideful king. He had nothing to commend himself with, but he knew that God exists, <laughs> and God reveals, and God answers, and Daniel was trusting him completely. Now, think of this. There were no safety nets for Daniel there in that courtroom. Daniel had simply surrendered himself completely into the hands of his God, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar was about to do. Nebuchadnezzar could have just clicked his finger and it was over for Daniel. So Murray wrote this. Absolute surrender. Let me tell you where I got those words. I use them myself often, and you have heard them num numberless times. But in Scotland once, I was in a company where we were talking about the condition of Christ's church and what the great need of the church and of believers is. And there was in our company a godly worker who had much to do in training workers. And I asked him what he would say was the greatest need of the church and the message that ought to be preached, he answered very quietly and simply and determinedly, absolute surrender to God is the one thing. The word struck me as never before. And that man began to tell how in the workers with whom he had to deal, he finds that if they are sound on that point, even though they may be backward, they are willing to be taught and helped, and they always improve. Whereas others who were not sound there very often go back and leave the work. And now I desire by God's grace to give you this message. Are you willing to surrender yourself absolutely into his hands? What is our answer to be? God knows there are hundreds of hearts who have said it, and there are hundreds more who long to say it, but hardly dare to do so. And there are hearts who have said it, but who have yet miserably failed, and who feel themselves condemned because they did not find the secret of the power to live that life. May God have a word for all. I stopped right there, and I was thinking, absolute surrender. Here's Daniel with only God to hang on to. We said only, didn't we? What else do you need? He made it very clear. Nebuchadnezzar, I didn't do this. God did. God did.
You know what? That goes right against pride, doesn't it? When I write papers, they tell me to footnote. I hate footnoting. It drives me crazy to footnote. All those dates and places and names and oh, it's just, it's a chore. I never liked footnoting. So I try to write books where I don't have to footnote anybody. I say, well, that's what I'm going to do. But I don't always get that luxury. You got a footnote. I've got to give credit to whom it's due. And so it's only right. I didn't say those things. I didn't write those things. I just referenced them. They were used to strengthen my argument. Daniel gave us one big footnote today. He says, I want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, this is God talking to you, not me. This is God's word, not mine. It's important to set this before us because if I say week after week, trust God regardless, I want you to question one thing. Am I standing in the way of that with my pride? Is there something within me that God looks upon me and says, you know, I'm opposed to that? I will not stand for that. We don't want to be like Nebuchadnezzar, do we? You've got two people to choose from. Who are you going to act like today? Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar? Good deal. That's what we were all saying on the inside. But we didn't say it out loud. This is what sets this passage to me as a part in such a unique way. I love the way he brought out God first. Let's learn that. Let's learn that too. Be that way. That when people see us, they don't see us, they see our God. The song we're going to sing in just a moment is called Seek Ye First. What? The Kingdom of God. Let's put that to our hearts this morning. I'm going to have a word of prayer. We're going to sing this song, and then when we're all done here, um, I'm going to ask Kelly, would you close us in prayer this morning? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives, too, to teach us. And we've got some ways to go here, Lord. We confess it. We need you. And yet we do so much on our own. We try so much on our strength and our own wisdom and our own knowledge. We, we try to find other avenues first. Lord, teach us to seek you first. To seek you first. To speak of you first. To give the credit to you. To put things where they ought to be. Our God is great. May we be the first ones to say it to a world that desperately needs to see that God exists. Thank you, Lord, for what you're teaching us in this. And as we close with a song and a prayer, Lord, we ask as we go this way, throughout this week, work in our hearts and examine us, Lord, with that x-ray. Show us what we are on the inside and bring us to better be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.